We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hi everybody, I'm Priscilla. And I'm Elise. Welcome to Novel Feelings, where we discuss representations of mental health issues in fiction novels. We are still technically on hiatus, but <laughs> we are dropping in. Um, we had an opportunity to speak with the author of the Rosie Project series, The Best of Adam Sharp, The Novel Project, among other books, uh, Graham Simsian. So we naturally jumped on that opportunity and we're dropping in with our interview. So if you haven't heard of Graham, he graduated in physics from Monash University and worked his way through several IT roles before specializing in data modeling and founding a business and IT consultancy. After completing a PhD in 2006 at Melbourne Uni, he enrolled in screenwriting and professional writing courses. His novel, The Rosie Project, won the 2012 Premier's Award for an unpublished manuscript and is now an international bestseller that sold 5 million copies, apparently. Just a few. Just a few. Just a couple. (laughs) (laughs) So if you haven't heard of The Rosie Project, this is a series that follows protagonist and geneticist Don Tillman, who is an associate professor. Don is searching for the perfect wife. (laughs) So in the first book in the series, he is pretty much doing what he can to find his life partner. He meets Rosie, who is a PhD student at the same university, and ends up helping her out with the father project, which is her attempt to find out who her real father is. And this is a romantic comedy, so you might make some assumptions about what happens along the way, but quite unusual for a romantic comedy, particularly of its time, is that Don Tillman, our protagonist, is uh, an autistic character. Yeah, so today we are talking mostly about the Rosie Project and its legacy, but we'll also touch on Graham's writing in general. Graham's latest book is The Novel Project, which is a book that is about how to write novels, basically. (laughs) A guide to writing your first novel. Um, And we also talk a bit about the best of Adam Sharp um, and some of Graham's upcoming works as well. Graham also has a book coming up called Daisy Chains that he's written with Anne Bliss, and it will be all about a mental health setting. Yeah, and we're super keen to read that as yes. something that is very close to our hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get started on our interview, just a couple of quick notes as per usual. So first of all, we are trained psychologists, but this podcast should never be taken as direct therapeutic advice. Secondly, this interview contains spoilers for the Rosie Project series, but not Graham's other works. And we will just mention as well that this interview has been edited for length. And just some content notes, we are going to be talking about topics such as autism, anxiety and depression and other mental health representations. As well as unethical therapists and institutionalization and inappropriate treatments and stigma and the deficit medical model and the deficits of the (laughs) medical model yeah we we get into some really interesting and important topics through this interview yeah absolutely and as ollie said at the start of this episode we are still on hiatus as a podcast but we are still active on our social media mainly instagram 
So go and follow us on Instagram, everyone, at novel underscore feelings, where we are trying to post regularly, including book reviews and general uh, mental health and psychology related content. Well, but for now, let's get into this interview. So we are here today with Graham Simpson. We are very excited to be having a bit of a chat about the legacy of the Rosie Project and to chat a bit more about Graham's writing processes and his other works. So Graham, thank you so much for joining us today. Now I always like to talk about my books and the subjects, so it's a privilege. We're happy to be here picking your brain today. So it's been nearly 10 years since The Rosie Project was first published. And of course, there have been uh, two additional books in the Don Tillman series that have been published since then. If you had to describe the impact of the series in one sentence, what would it be? I'm already putting you on the spot. I'd like to say more sympathy for autism. Mm. There you go. You're only one of the few words that they are. I mean, yeah, I mean, if I wanted to expand upon that, I, I, yeah, I, was, I was just fishing when you asked me that as to whether I said better understanding of autism. I thought, no, no, look, I'm not a clinician. I'm not speaking from the heart on this in terms of personal experience. But I think that the net effect of the books, and let's just flag that we've sold about 5 million of them. I think it's an important, it's an important yep. aspect of it because it, it relates to the reach of the book. So you may have a book that's, you know, frankly, better representation of autism, but if it's only sold a few thousand copies, its net effect is going to be a lot less. So, so I'd say, you know, the rosy books, I know from anecdotal feedback, have had a significant impact on individuals' acceptance of autism in family members in particular and in themselves. That's so wonderful. I think that's the best thing we can aim for when it comes to representations in fiction. I think it was certainly the first book that I read that represented autism and, you know, mental health and psychology is obviously a topic that's really important to me and that I care about. And one of the first, um, first books to really have that breakthrough into the market was really fantastic to see and to start these conversations too. So I'm certainly not the first person um, to write um, about, about autism. You know, the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, um, course tv series and so forth like big bang theory we've got movies that go right back to uh, to rain man and so forth and these these uh, are regularly cited as touchstones for people's understanding of autism for, for, for better or for worse for me i suppose the rosie project was one of the first books that i read where it was quite an empathetic portrayal of an autistic character as having grown up and seen a couple of those series before or a couple of films it didn't really help me get into the head of the character. It was mostly based on other people's perceptions of those characters and a lot of really negative representations that were coming through. So to see that and you know, revisiting the book more recently and you know, honestly, it holds up, <laughs> I'm going to say. So that was really fantastic to see too and to see that empathy that I know has touched a lot of readers over the last nine years. Well, I'm really pleased you think it held, it's held up because I think I would write some things differently uh, differently today, but your your point about about building empathy, I think it helped that it started as a as a screenplay. Mm. And with a screenplay, you have no access to the characters' inner thoughts, which can often help illuminate where they're coming from, make them more sympathetic to us. So I had to sort of pull out every trick in the in a screenwriting book, and you know, I hate to discuss it in such a technical way, but I had to 
pull out all those tricks to make Don an empathetic character because people are looking at the screenplay and saying, when we watch this movie, we're going to hate him, we're going to find him annoying and so on. And that was, that was great insight, really. It gave me great insight into how people perceive autistic people. But I did a whole lot of things to make him more sympathetic without too much cheating, just using the, the techniques. But when I moved to a novel... I could write in first person, Mm. Don's view of the world, access to Don's thoughts. And that's where you start to realise that most portrayals of autistic people in literature have been those that the autistic person is a side person. Um, They're often for comic effect and so forth, not getting any access to their thoughts. Rain Man's a good example too. Even while we would see um, Raymond, the Dustin Hoffman character, as being clearly a key character, one of the two key characters. He's not the one key character. This is ultimately about Tom Cruise's journey. Reading The Rosie Project again, it struck me that this was the first novel I'd read where an autistic character had been placed in a rom-com setting as well and seen as being a romantic lead and a desirable lead too. So that was something that I really liked to see. Yeah, look, I didn't set out to write a romantic comedy. In fact, it started Mm. as a drama. But what I really set out to do was to illuminate the character of an autistic person, of Don Tillman. And I thought, what's the most powerful way I can illuminate his character and show the challenges he faces with acceptance? And, and if I just had him trying to be accepted in applying for a job or, or almost anything else, I could show these sort of prejudices um, in, a, in a sort of a crude way. You know, you can't discriminate in employment unless it relates to the job, et cetera, et cetera. But one place that we all allow ourselves to discriminate without giving any reasons is in romance and love. We can say, look, this is not the right person for me, and we don't have to justify it. And I thought, good, that, that gives us a situation where Don is going to have to deal with a situation of rejection um, where uh, you know, there's no comeback on this. He, he can only you know, become accepted, as it were, rather than win it on a legal battle. Yeah, absolutely. A lot has changed in the decade or so since the first book was published around the cultural understanding of autism and autistic characters. If you were writing this novel in 2022, if you'd just been struck by the idea to to write the novel now, is there anything that you would do different around the representation of autism? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, you say 10 years has passed since the the novel was published, but 15 years has Mm -hmm. passed since I sat down and started writing uh, what became The Rosie Project. Mm -hmm. So uh, an enormous amount has changed, at least in my eyes, in terms of how autism is portrayed, how well the issues are discussed, you know, what's what's on the agenda here, and indeed the clinical understanding of it as well, I think it's changed. Certainly the classification with DSM moving to strike Asperger's syndrome and consolidate the whole thing in, into autism. Look, there's a couple of caricature things in there that I go a little over the top in the Rosie Project, which I wouldn't do again. They're small, but they're things like Don learning to dance and doing it very, very quickly. I wanted to emphasise that you know, I didn't want to propagate this idea of autistic people all having these sort of special talents and skills and so forth. Um, on the other hand, I think a lot of autistic people are capable of a great focus. So I was happy to show, I got it right, I think, or relatively right with Don on the Cocktails, you know, a little bit of artistic license. But the, the thing was that he, he just focused totally on it um, because that was the task in hand. And I think if I personally focused that hard on learning cocktail recipes, I wouldn't quite reach Don's standard, but it's, it's, it's feasible. Whereas the dancing was just a little bit too much of a stretch. That said, the dancing came across quite realistic in the way he tried to learn it versus how it actually played out in the end, that it wasn't quite 
possible, I suppose, to learn dancing the way Don decided to approach it. Yeah, and look, Don, in many ways, Don's a scientist. I mean, that's his profession, and and he comes at it, um, it comes at all his problems that way. And if you just took away the whole idea of autism and just said, look, this is a scientist who applies the scientific paradigm to everything he faces in life, you wouldn't be a long way away from describing Don Tillman without necessarily any reference to to autism. I mean, there's very little in there um, in terms of autistic traits, such as, you know, difficulty making eye contact and so forth, the physical manifestations and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, Not in that first book. By the time we get to the third book, we see a lot more of that. But in in many ways, it's Don Tillman scientist in the first book. And look, part of that is because I did not realise I was writing an autistic character certainly not with that label. I was channeling, um, drawing from people that I had met in a life in science, um, in technology, in in research. So these were people who did not have diagnoses. They came from a generation that that simply wasn't going to go looking for a diagnosis if they were coping okay. And coping okay meant they had a a job, they um, had relationships and so forth. And that was the sort of milieu that I was mixing in, and that was where where Don Tillman came from. Not out of any, um, not out of any book or you know, clinical study of autism. Yeah. So that leads nicely to one of our questions. That in book three, the Rosie result, John and Rosie's son Hudson is grappling with his own social problems, and the question is raised around autism. Did you always plan for Don and Hudson to begin to identify with autism in book three? No, well, I did by the time I started writing book three, but not, <laughs> yes. but not before that. Um, each of the Rosie books was meant to be the end. So there are traditionally no sequels to romantic comedies. Mm. And, you know, Bridget Jones's diary is a bit of a notable exception. But really, I, I wanted to follow Don's journey. I wasn't interested in writing a, uh, another romantic comedy, much to the disappointment of my American publishers <laughs> in particular. But I wanted to follow Don's journey. And the best way to follow Don's journey for me, was now to use the structure of a domestic comedy, if you like. And in fact, the way it's written, it could have gone on to you know, 50 episodes or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and then um, people were interested. I got a lot of people saying, I wonder what it was like for Don as a child. Um, mm-hmm. And I was sort of interested in that, but the idea of writing a book set in the 80s or whatever when Don was young, to me, would um, stop me from dealing with the contemporary view that we would have of autism and the contemporary way that a kid might face it. So it might have been historically interesting. It might have said, poor Don, but it wouldn't have been particularly um, making much of a contribution to the current debate and to illuminating the sort of choices that are currently available. And I stumbled upon the idea because they had a child in the second book of, of making that child Don's avatar in a way who would then face the same sort of challenges as Don and it would give Don a chance to reflect on his own childhood as he coached as he coached the sun. So I, I was quite pleased with that, that sort of being able to draw that from what I'd written already and to come up with something which I think is the best book in the series. Yeah, and The Rosie Result is my favourite book in the series, I'll say Thank that you. too. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it and, and I suppose seeing the parallels between Hudson's experience and Don's experience but in a more modern setting and hopefully a more understanding setting too was really really lovely to see. And throughout the series, Don and Hudson as well, they both have a lot of pressure placed upon them to fit in with society's standards, to be you know, seen as being neurotypical and to suppress their the quirks and all the things that make them them. But they also have pressure placed upon them to accept themselves as they are. Can you comment on how you balanced um, the need for change versus the need for acceptance? 
Well, I, I think um, both of these things come both externally and internally. So there are external expectations, and I would comment that they they can be the worst, you know, external expectations and forcing them to mould. School is a, is really at one end of the of the spectrum, if you like, in terms of requiring conformity. Um, mandating what you do, what times, who you work with, all those things. And then at the other end is when you're an adult and you're out in the real world and perhaps you are in, are in an autism-friendly environment. And, and academe, I think, particularly academic science and mathematics, um, are relatively autism-friendly, if only because there are a lot of autistic people mm. in those environments. Clearly, the, you know, the book itself is, um, is for both Don and Hudson, that there's a balance between self-acceptance um, and, um, and fitting in, as it were, and each of them you know, takes different positions at different times in the book and each of them takes the lead and you know, helps the other because by the, uh, by the last act, the last quarter of the book, Hudson is really leading Don, whereas up until then, Don was trying to lead Hudson. I was just going to say that's a good point about academia. I think that's one of the few settings where people are allowed to really deep dive into what they're interested in. And it's probably quite acceptable to focus intensely on that. Yeah, look, look I would say that um, information technology has been a very happy hunting ground for autistic people. I ran an IT consultancy for many years. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people that we would now recognize as being autistic, often doing terrific work in those jobs. But you would, you know, over the years, I came to recognize a certain, broadly speaking, type um, that I would now recognize as being an autistic person um, working in the field. And, and I, I think one of the things that's, um, that changed between the first book I wrote and the third book was a greater recognition of autism in women. Um, it was very much seen as a male thing. Well, you know, there were a few women, but mainly it was seen as um, a male characteristic. If you talk to clinicians, they only talked about kids, whereas... Mm -hmm. Those of us who encountered it informally certainly knew that it existed in adults, but we did tend to see a very major male bias. We weren't putting on the right glasses to see the women. Yeah, absolutely. I think autism in women and in adults are two areas that are growing in terms of our understanding and the people who are presenting to clinics. Yep. Part of my work is to do assessments, and I have seen quite a few adults come through to better understand themselves and find out whether they are on the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a kid presenting to a clinic mm -hmm. is far more problematic than an adult. This is my, all of these things, mm -hmm. of course, is my layman's views. Mm -hmm. But you know, if, if the adult presents to a clinic, they are saying, help me, I need some help here. Um, if a kid presents, they're very often presented because their parents or teachers want them to present, and they're not, and they, the help they want may be far more about coping strategies and about behavioural change in a sort of, if, I, if that makes sense to you as a, as a yeah. distinction. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we can talk a lot about behaviour and how we need to reframe that sort of understanding uh, and that, you know, uh, children communicate via behaviour because they don't have the language and developmentally the skills that adults sometimes expect of them. And by the time a lot of, you know, as is the case with, with um, people like Don too, by the time a lot of people have gotten to adulthood, whether or not they've been diagnosed with autism, a lot of the times people mm. might appear to be quote-unquote high-functioning because of their area of work that they're in, the coping skills that they've developed, um, masking that might be happening as well, so the faces that people put on to try to appear neurotypical too. So, yeah, I think it's there's been such a boom in the last um 
10 to 15 years of awareness, acceptance and celebration of autistic people. I think that's a, I think that's a very nice way of putting it, a very optimistic way of putting it. I, I, would, I think that things are better than they were. Yeah, maybe um, celebration is a bit of a strong word. But I have to say that my experience with clinicians, both um, psychologists and psychiatrists, um, has been incredibly disappointing. There are, there are people who get it from, from and obviously I'm taking my perspective here, um, but so much of it is just plain ignorant. Um, my wife's a psychiatrist. People say, oh, she must have helped you with Don Tillman. And I say, well, frankly, no, because the amount of training she received in, um, in autism, despite its prevalence in the population, was utterly minimal. The picture, particularly in psychiatry, is so often one of deficit, um, of someone who needs to be under the medical model cured. The discussion around children is so often about making them do something, about about changing the behaviour with very little, um, you know, it's you don't understand. Their parents are really struggling here. You think, well, what about the poor damn kid? So um, I, I'm not saying there aren't some excellent, fabulous people out there in both um, psychology and psychiatry and in, in the other therapeutic areas, but by golly, I've spoken to some people who should know better. You can't see me, but I am nodding in agreement with what you're saying there. We definitely have um, a lot of room to grow, I think, in this area. But to get back to the Rosie project, we're both psychologists who have worked in academic settings. So Elise is a PhD student, uh, candidate, uh, sorry. I'll accept both. (laughs) And I've been a research assistant at a university. So we're always interested in representations of psychologists and psychology researchers in fiction. Um, Can you tell us a bit about how you wrote the characters of Jean and Claudia in the Rosie Project? Well, you know, certainly Jean was late to the party because the original version of the Rosie Project, which was called the Clara Project Mm. for quite a long time, and that Don was a physicist. And I have to say, I believe I published um, a short story with Don as a physicist before Big Bang Theory came along. But by the time I was reasonably well advanced, we had a definite problem that the Big Bang Theory already had a bunch of physicists. And physics is what I knew. My first degree was physics. At the same time, I, I stumbled on the idea of combining Don's search for the perfect partner with Rosie's search Um, for her biological father, each of them trying to find some sort of happiness through the discovery of some sort of perfect other, um, hypothetical perfect other that didn't necessarily exist. So I was very happy with the shape of the story, but it meant that Don could no longer be a physicist. He needed to be a geneticist in order to be pulled into Rosie's project. I I knew a reasonable amount about um, evolutionary psychology. Um, It's just an reading interest of mine. So I thought, well, you know, um, we can quickly switch Gene around and give him a different sort of role rather than physicist and we'll make him um, a bit of a pig. And I think we can do that by making him an evolutionary psychologist with, with, <laughs> with strong views about men, women, relationships and so forth. Yeah, he's definitely not very likable for a large portion mm. of the book, but I, it's obviously intentional. But he's, he's deliberately complex. In the, in the first yeah. version of it, I had two characters. One was the the gay lab manager, a real sort of trope for romantic comedies, who was going to give Don lots of good advice. And Gene, the, the whatever you want to call him, um, the ne'er do well, um, who would uh, who would give Don all of the wrong information. And somebody said to me, you know, sometimes it's a good thing to to combine characters. And I thought that's what I need to do: combine these two characters uh, and make them a more complex version that. Um, 
you know, Alec Baldwin would like to play. <laughs> I could see that casting very easily. <laughs> yeah. um, whereas, um, whereas Claudia, Jean's wife, I wanted someone who was a, uh, look, a, a sympathetic therapist without being sort of deeply Freudian or anything like that, you know, much more of a su- supportive psychologist. And she was a bit of an amalgam of, of people, of therapists I've known, not all of whom have been psychologists or psychiatrists. I think one OT in particular, the occupational therapist who did quite a bit of therapy, who I know, who, who you know, there was a bit of that in, in Claudia, the sort of the sense of the, the psychologically minded, sensible person to some degree, the moral centre in the book. Yeah, and I suppose having a character like Claudia as well gives Don a chance to have these conversations that are therapeutic in nature without him going to therapy was an observation. I know. Yeah, yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, it would have changed the nature of the book if Don had gone into therapy. Uh, as a personal comment, I did spend a lot of The Rosie Project wishing Claudia would break up with Jean. <laughs> I, accept the, I accept where their relationship um, got to in the end as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's it's, a, it's an interesting journey, and uh, you know, people are flawed, but people do the, do these things. And uh, one of the things that motivated me to write the second book, uh, the Rosie Effect, was we gave it had a happily ever after at the end of um, the Rosie Project, and people would say to me, "Oh, their marriage could never last because," and it was always on Don because an autistic person wouldn't be able to cope with this, wouldn't be able to cope with that, and you know, would get all this wrong. So it was important for me when I wrote the, the second book a lot of people hate Rosie in the second book um but I wanted Don to be the one who had to do the heavy lifting it was Nancy Reagan who said I think um that a marriage is never 50 50 it's always 90 10 and I wanted to create a, a story in which the 90 was being done by Don otherwise we learned nothing if 90 was being done by Rosie we say well an autistic person with massive supports in place can get by I wanted to say an autistic person who's got a big job to do can do it Speaking of Don going to therapy, putting aside autism for a moment, it came up as the series unfolded that Don had struggled a lot in the past, particularly with bullying, depression, and having misdiagnosis, including schizophrenia and OCD. Uh, And by the time we meet Don, he's more at peace and accepting of himself. Can you comment on Don's struggle with his mental health broadly? Yeah, that was inspired by life. Um, mm. A particular person who's a great friend of mine fed into the uh, description of Don was probably the person who most inspired Don, although I drew from many people I knew, mm. and he would say he does not recognise himself on the page, so that's, <laughs> you know, that's certainly what I set out to do. But he had experiences worse than what Don describes in the book. Um, it was probably... 10, 15 years earlier than Don, so we expect it to be worse, I guess. Um, But he was institutionalised at one stage. He was diagnosed with just about everything you can name except what would have been called Asperger's back in those days. And some of the treatment he received at the hands of the psychiatric profession um, was was beyond unethical to be illegal, I would think. Um, So, you know, he's got an enormous bunch of stories and, you know, I was tended to pay out a bit more than I did. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, you recognise there are very good people out there trying to do very good things. Um, but there was a, a very high level of ignorance around, as I say, something which has a, a pretty high prevalence in the community. Yeah, that's so sad to hear about. And but sadly not surprising as yeah. well. Look, look, from his point of view, it was a, it was a psychiatrist who saved his life, uh, who gave him very directive advice, who basically said to him, you need a job. It's, it's something that I, I play in uh, with in The Rosie Effect, where George's mm-hmm. son, George Jr., uh, George IV, um, is a rock and roller who's, who's become a, a drug addict and that sort of thing. And, and Don lines him up and says, you have to have a job. 
Um, and this is pretty much what my friend psychiatrist said to him. You have to have a job. Um, you could live on welfare the rest of your life, but it won't be a long life. And he took it very literally. And um, as a man well past retirement age now, um, he still works. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like it was really life-changing for him. You know, we still see it today where it's not necessarily the fact that someone's autistic that means that their mental health is going to be impacted, but rather the response that society has to autistic people. And I'm glad that we, we saw that with Don as well, where part of the complicated aspects of his mental health, but was that uh, the fact that he had been bullied and had had that kind of lack of social connection with others growing up too. So yeah, not as simple as cause and effect. Um, you know, autis- autism causes mental health problems. It's more of a case of people who are not neurotypical are existing in a society that's built for people who are neurotypical and people are cruel and horrible and don't understand at times. And school is the worst place. Um, and in the, as we see in the first book, the, the dating scene, if you like, is a very tough place for someone to be when people can arbitrarily reject you, whereas in a workplace or whatever, they have to be a, a lot more careful about these things. Yeah. For the first two books, Don was the um, you know a, a, a classic sort of um, comedic character, the truth teller. Um, Don's autism led to him being what we might call tactless, but he's calling out, you know, power, if you like. He was calling out people, you know, the emperor and so forth in the clothes. And we said, isn't he wonderful? Um, isn't, isn't, isn't his autism just this wonderful thing? And I wanted to show by the time we got to, and in the second book, he gets arrested. So we see that, you know, stuff can go wrong, but he gets let off. He's okay. He gets through it. But in the, but I wanted him to do something that readers wouldn't approve of and then have to really deal with that. But sometimes Don is, you know, we know he's a man of good heart, or we believe he is, but he's going to do things which are socially unacceptable that we will find unacceptable. And I wanted that to be a, a, a sort of challenge, which is why I had him do his, um, what he called the genetics lecture outrage, mm. where he uh, lines up all the kids and so on, um, or the students in terms of their, their colour and so on, which apparently has actually happened since um, in the States. So oh, no. <laughs> life imitating art. Um, but... That was too much for some, um, and I won't. Not, I don't know that it was too much for any readers, but it was too much for some publishers who wouldn't. Take- Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So uh, one, one publisher, um, where I won't name the country, but in their country the book had gone to number, the first book went to number one in their bestseller charts. The second went to number one, and they said no to the third um, because of mm. what they regarded as Don being racist. So... It was an interesting place to go to have because, you know, it was almost like you're on Don's side up until the point he does something you don't, don't like and then you dump him. Yeah. Well, the way he was introduced to us, you know, with that genetic lecture where he asked if whether people would shoot the baby if the baby yeah. was... Yeah. That was also... Um, A little confronting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, well, I can see the logic, but yes. 
I can I can remember that was I can remember that that scene a little later in the book, and um, I, I won a prize, which when when the story was still a screenplay, which involved some coaching from a couple of the Hollywood's top you know screenplay fixer uppers. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them, one of them was just blown away by this. Shoot the baby! He kept saying all the time. He says, "You've got to open the shoot the baby." So we, we opened the shoot the baby. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like obviously people are going to have opinions <laughs> no matter what. But I, I am curious. It does seem like the response um, to Don from the autistic community has largely been quite positive. Have you received any comments or criticism about? the representation of autism in the series that you personally disagree with or oh or yeah I, I, disagree, I, I disagree with all the people who, who disagree with me as it were um <laughs> look the, the response from the autism community has been overwhelmingly yeah. positive and, and look there's a sense to which if i got it half right that, that's a good thing because you know so many copies are sold and so forth but the autism community is just so being positive, engagement, and so forth. Um, I, I just had yeah, so many people write to me, and it's not easy to find me necessarily, but through my publisher and so on, saying that they, they, they understood their father for the first time. They, you know, this is just like their son, or this is just like me. I mean, literally people who picked up the Rosie Project, read it and said, oh, my God, that's me, mm-hmm. and gone off and got an autism assessment. And mm-hmm. as adults. The, the sort of 5%, if you like, the feedback from, you know, from autism activists, I would say, um, they hate the fact, they, they don't like the standard male scientist representation. Um, you know, we don't need another one of these, thank you very much. It's, it's invariably women. I, don't, I can't think of a, a male um, who's come back with us and said it's a, it's a bad rep, but I think women reasonably, autistic women reasonably think um, that the uh, representation of autism has been overwhelmingly a male representation. I've just added to that. Um, and, look, I, I really respect what they're saying there. But, you know, I, I, you know to a certain extent you write what you know, and um, I, I, that was as far as I knew. And by the time we get to the third book, we have women who identify as autistic, um, although they don't play as big a part in the book as they might in a book like um, Kay Kerr's books, for example. Mm-hmm. Kay Kerr is now writing um, autistic women, um, Helen Huang, um, oh, and they're very specifically Holly Smale with the Geek Girl series. Holly identifies autistic. These are all actually own voices stuff. It's fabulous. And if anything, we're getting more representations of women coming out of the own voices movement than we are of men. Yeah, I suppose one way we could look at it is that your work is one of the works that has that have opened the doors for more of these stories to come into popular culture, I suppose. And that way we can get... Um, a variety of representations and yeah the responsibility isn't just on one person yeah it's a lot to place on just one story and one character to represent all experiences isn't it well the first question you asked was what impact i felt the rosie project had. yeah and i think one of the secondary impacts is that it has encouraged other writers and it's encouraged publishers to take it on because you know Publishers, sadly, are always looking for saying it's just like the last one, only a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And there are now a lot of books out there with um, characters who are either, either identified as autistic or are recognisably autistic, and they say largely female. Um, and I think it's a wonderful thing. And in fact, my, my own response, particularly with the, um, the preponderance of own voices now, or the increase in the number of own voices, autistic people writing um, or books about autism, as it were, um, is for me to get out of the way now. I, I feel I've, you know, I, I have no plans to write 
another book with an autistic central character, but Anne and I are writing a mental health series, and one of the characters in you know, that second tier character rather than the protagonist will be autistic because that's sort of represented what's out there in the community. And we're definitely looking forward to reading that series as well. We do have a, a question coming up about that too. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, the Rosie Project has touched a lot of people worldwide and we understand that Bill Gates invited you to Seattle for an interview at one stage. That's That would have been quite the experience. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there's a video of us talking um, up there on the internet somewhere. Yeah. So if you Google it, you'll find me talking to Bill and, and then Melinda Gates at the time and, and, and Anne came along. We, we spent some time talking, chatting with them informally and then did a, did a more formal interview. Would you say that that was the most surreal thing that's happened to you as a result of writing the series or is there something else? Well, funnily enough, in my previous job, which was as a business and IT consultant, um, I met a lot. It would not have been out of line for me to have met Bill Gates in that role. Yeah. And I, I met with you know, captains of industry and you know, prime ministers. I, you know, so I got. I haven't been overwhelmed by the idea of meeting you know, important people. Look, it's the personal stories from regular people who say, you know, this was the book that, that I read to my mother as she was dying. You know, because mm. she wanted to laugh. You know, those sorts of things. Um, all the people who say, you know, I picked this up at the airport and I got a diagnosis. Uh, wow, you think this has landed, this book has landed at just the right moment in someone's life to, to make a change. And, and look, I mean, there's a surely um, a parallel with the sort of work that you do. That, that sometimes I'm sure as, you know, work, if you're working as clinical psychologists, there are times you think, well, that session didn't go anywhere. And then perhaps other times when the, the patient comes to you even years later and says, you know what, there was something that you got from me or said to me on this day and everything changed. And power is perhaps the wrong word for it, but to have that sort of impact is a, is a, is a wonderful thing, I think. Yeah, agreed. I think, yeah, we do have a lot of those days where we're like, oh, yeah, nothing happened there. We didn't do anything um, helpful, but then you're right. The next, then someone will come along and say that they remembered something we said and that would be the loveliest thing to have come out of work. It's not always what you think as well, just the things that touch people. Um, mm. you know, it's sometimes quiet moments or surprising conversations that you might have that really stick with people or make a difference. So yeah, you can't always predict it, but it definitely makes that process a lot more rewarding, I think. Absolutely. And look, Graham, I've got to ask, we are sure you're sick of movie-related questions, but we've <laughs> you know, got to ask, um, are there any updates that you can give us about the movie? Not really. Uh, Henry Cavill is cast as Don at the moment, so mm-hmm. Superman. He's got a lot on his plate. They were talking about shooting it later this year. I believe that when I see it. We, <laughs> we've had a success. It's really about casting. We had a succession of um, fine people cast to play both Don and Rosie at different times, never together. Um, mm-hmm. And look, I, I just, everybody else worries about it more than I do, I think. Um, <laughs> I don't lose any sleep over it. I'm worrying about the next book. I just it's it's a tax lotto ticket it's sitting out there if it happens to come up one one week fabulous we'll be waiting i suppose to hear if there's any more news um out of hollywood about it later this year <laughs> but all all my focus at the moment is on the new book that um ann and i are writing a new series of books set in the mental health facility which will be very much in your space so that's yeah. occupying my mind pretty firmly at the moment yeah well uh maybe it's time for us to start asking some more general questions about your other works and your writing 
more broadly. Um, so might as well start with that. Can you tell us about your upcoming work and what we can expect about this new book? Yeah, okay. So it's, it's slated for publication um, in more than a year's time. It's going to be about October next year, the way it's going. Um, not that we're running behind, but it's just people overseas publishing schedules and so forth. But Anne, Anne Buist, who's my um, writing partner and life partner, um, and I are doing this together. Um, she is a professor of psychiatry at University of Melbourne, um, and she you know, we decided to write um, an episodic story in the sen- in the way that you might watch a TV series um, set in a mental health service, uh, largely around psychiatrists, but with psychologists, um, social workers, um, you know, the, the nurses, the usual the usual team. Um, and, and I guess what we like about it, um, or what I like about it, is that. We- there are guidelines out there about writing about mental health and we can safely ignore them um, in the sense that they're there for people who don't know anything about mental health. Mm-hmm. And Anne knows a lot about mental health. And so I push her and say, what, what really happens? Let's, let's, not, you know, let's not write a story that's, that's pandering to a certain representation that people want, but let's give as accurate representation as we can. Let's give people some real insight. And look, we, we've had first readers read this and we're just blown away by the the fact that so many readers, and we're talking about intelligent people here, think that psychiatry is either, once you walk in, you're locked up forever and it's one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Mm. or um, you're on a couch talking to a Freudian analyst. And there's nothing in between. There's no episodic treatment of bipolar disorder or or schizophrenia for that matter. Um, They're just not on the agenda. So we think we've got something quite interesting here. Yeah, that sounds really good. I'm really looking forward to reading that. Anything that kind of gets out of that stereotype of all the work that we do is just with people lying on a couch in free association. Uh, I'll be happy to read about that, I think. And I think you've mostly answered this question, but in terms of mental health representation in fiction, what would you like to see better representation of or just more um, representation of really? I guess the first thing is uh, I'd like to see representation, of, uh, sympathetic representation of neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd also particularly like to see the idea of mentally ill as some sort of um, excuse for being bad eliminated. You know, why did the, why did this character do this thing which we can't provide any reasonable motivation for? Oh, they were mentally ill, and and I think that has just been been there forever. The, what's why is the bad guy bad? Mentally ill. And there's nothing, you know, there's nothing deeper than that. I think it's a, a terrible sort of stereotype. Um, you know, I'm not saying you can't have somebody who, for example, has a psychosis, um, uh, you know, behaves in an inappropriate way or whatever, but let's be clear that this is a psychosis, it has this sort of duration or it's a permanent thing, whatever it might be. Let's, you know, let's get the nuts and bolts right rather than this, they're bad and then just sympathetic portrayals. I mean, autism is just so badly portrayed most of the time. And, you know, it's there for comic effect, um, a, a great, so that the autistic person is someone to laugh at. I was, I was tremendously concerned about that with, uh, with Don Tillman because I wrote, this is a comedy. You know, these three books are at different mm-hmm. levels, you know, meant to be laugh-out-loud comedies, mm-hmm. and we definitely do laugh at Don Tillman at times. What was crucial to me was when you get to the end of these books, how do you feel about Don? Is he someone that you would like as a friend? Is he someone that you respect? Or is he just uh, this weird guy that you laugh at? And, and I think most people, well, 
the women who write to me and say, I'd marry Don Tillman. I'd give up being a vegan to be with Don Tillman. (laughs) Give me some encouragement that I've succeeded. But accept the standardized meal system. Yeah, I would accept the standardized meal system to marry Don. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. We couldn't agree more with everything you said there about the trope that we would be happy never to see again. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Um, And you mentioned in a previous interview that your greatest fear is your writing causing harm. What would you recommend to other writers who may fear the same thing and are trying to minimise the likelihood of causing harm in this way? I I think the first requirement when you, this is all around these questions about representation and so forth. Am I, I don't identify as autistic. Am I allowed to write an autistic character? And, And the answer I have for myself is I better be accurate. I better be such that most autistic people reading this will say, this is a reasonable representation of the sort of person I am. There's a requirement to do your homework and not to shirk it, not to say, well, I just won't put that character in the book because I had to do homework. You say, no, this is part of the, the being a writer. You, you're going to have a variety of characters in your book and you will do homework. Look, the other thing I would add is that homework should not be reading medical um, or particularly psychiatric textbooks. Um, you know, psychology, well, maybe, but you know, psych- psychiatry particularly the DSM formulations, are they focus so much on a disease model on deficit that there's nothing there to balance it, so little about the strengths of an autistic person, um, and that applies right across the board. So whereas if you actually, rather than reading the books, if you meet people, talk to them about about their experiences and so forth, you actually get very quickly to to something which is realistic on the page. Um, So early on I talked to autism organisations to make sure I got it right in the Rosie Project, Mm-hmm. Ah, they were of some use, and I, I thank them for their for their help. But it was far more important to talk to autistic people, um, individuals, um, and that should be what a writer does anyway. That we, we're not writing generalities; we're writing people. Makes sense to me. <laughs> it's not just about a checklist, is it? It's not just about a list of symptoms. You've written a book called The Novel Project, and that's come out this year. Would that be all right? Yeah. Yeah, that came out in March of this year. Um, it's a how-to book on writing, um, which my publisher said, we've got far too many of those around already. We don't need another one. And I said, no, have a look at mine. Um, and, and I've come out of a science background. Um, I'm very much a, a how-to type of person, whereas most books on writing reflect the author's experience. I mean, most authors are about writing about someone's experience, as it were. So they write about their own experience writing books. And that's a very valuable contribution uh, well worth reading for someone who wants to write a book. But there's also a need, I think, that for something that says, well, the process typically takes about X period of time. You could break it into nine steps. Each of those nine steps has various stages within it. This is how you go about creating character and so on. So much more um, prescriptive than the most of what's around. Um, I, I would say that a lot of screenplay, screenwriting books have that sort of style, but not so much in the, in the novel writing sphere. And, and so far I've been getting some... It's been doing very well. I've been very happy. Has anybody, to your knowledge, written a book after reading the novel project so far? Uh, Well, I've only it was only published in March, so that had to work (laughs) really, really fast and faster than the book says you can. But I'm very impressed. I have coached um, a few people um, using the same sorts of techniques, mentored them, and I won't won't name them, but you know, who now have um, books well advanced or even published. Okay. The method must work. Yeah. Well, look, look I, I have not sat over them and said, now you do this, now you do this, but far more I've had conversations when they've got stuck and said, perhaps this is what you do now. 
and so on. So I'm, you know, playing a small part in getting them there, but um, it, it's been useful for me too to sort of form, uh, make a bit more formal what I do to formalise it. Maybe we should get the book, Elise, and actually write. Everybody <laughs> should get the book. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll help me finally finish that novel I started in 2011 or something uh, like same. that. <laughs> <laughs> the books we write in our early 20s that never see the light of day. <laughs> well, one of the things, yeah, it's practice. I mean, I started writing in my early 20s briefly, like for about six weeks, and thought this is just garbage. It's got no chance. And it really was. It was garbage. But um Look, if I was you know, trying to learn to do anything, of course you're not going to do a good job just, just messing around intuitively at the beginning. It's, it's going to take time and effort. And I was, was sucked into this idea that writing was all about inborn talent rather than about learning technique and craft. And I think that's a myth that gets perpetuated a lot. You know, there's this very romantic idea of the the novelist, the writer, who's just this genius who with words flow out of them. Um, and, look, that was definitely not my experience when I attempted to write. So No, no, and it's very disappointing when it doesn't happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> Staring at that blank page and nothing happens, mm. classic. Yeah, how would you say your writing process has evolved since your first novel was released? Oh, it's evolved consciously, okay? So that's probably the most important thing, that I'm a what, what Thomas Schoen called a reflective practitioner, that you do something and when you've done it, you take time out to say what worked, what didn't, how's the process going to go next time? Um, so it was a very long and, and convoluted process to get to the Rosie Project because I was learning all the way. It started as a screenplay. I think I did about 70 passes from as it went from a thing called the face of God, to, believe it or not, to, to natural selection, to the Clara project, to, you know, finally the Rosie project and massive changes. I mean, I was learning how to do it. And that was five years of really, really hard work. So at the end of that, I thought, well, what worked, what didn't? And by the time I was writing Rosie Result, which is about my fifth book or so, um, I, I won't say I had it down, but I was sort of 90% of the way to a, to a process that, you know, was relatively stable, and that was when I felt I could write um, could write the novel project. So it's changed. It's changed a lot. Um, it borrows a lot from screenwriting. I'm, I'm really interested in getting story right and laying that down before I try to put fine prose on the page. I have a question about the best of Adam Sharp, um, <laughs> which you have said that you believe this is your best book. Um, well, I think I was misquoted. You've read The Age. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was misquoted. Um, yeah, it, was, it was a good interview, but these things always sort of slip yeah. through. Mm-hmm. Um, I said I have a particular uh, affection for the best of Adam Sharp. I think my best book is The Rosie Result, for, for the record. Um, but uh, I really, it's a self-indulgent book. The best of Adam Sharp. I, I got to you know, put mu- stuff that related to my musical tastes and all that sort of stuff on the page, and that's not necessarily being kind to the reader. Uh, and I got to explore some, you know, some middle class mores and and conflicts and so forth, which I which I found interesting. Um, so it was a, it was a little self indulgent, but at the same time, um, yeah, I, I, I liked what I did in that book. And so, some people love it. Some people just love that book, and a lot of people don't. Yeah. <laughs> I really like that you made a Spotify playlist to go with it because um, I think our music tastes are very different, so I didn't know a lot of the songs, but it was nice to be able to go and um, refer to the playlist. And I have to say I found it really compelling and quite surprising in a lot of ways. Like, I guess being a romance reader, I had in my mind what I thought the ending was going to be, but I really enjoyed the actual ending much better. Yeah, yeah. Look, it was it was meant to to um, 
uh, I guess, subvert a lot of the tropes of romance. Um, I guess, I guess, one of the things you know, when I, after I wrote the Rosie Project, and people really loved it, and everybody loves a romance. But you know what? A romance lasts a year, maybe a little bit longer, or whatever. And after that, people get together, and they're going to have to find something a lot more substantial to sustain them. And that's what I wanted to write about in the Rosie effect. Um, and, and then Adam Sharp came immediately after that. And what I wanted to do there was to take these two ideas, the idea of the of romantic love and the idea of um, somebody, one of the, there's a psychologist who has a sort of a, a three-dimensional thing where you have romantic love, um, companionate love, and well, it's probably physical love or something like that, but, you know, three different aspects of love. And, you know, Adam's in a relationship of strong companionship but romance has entirely disappeared and then suddenly romance comes into his life with a person who's otherwise not particularly compatible which one's he going to choose um and i thought that was an an interesting thing to play with you know how would you encourage people to read the book like what do you think what would you say stands out about adam sharp look look, i think um it's interesting that my uk publisher who's done fairly well with the book i mean it certainly compares well with books by people like nick hornby who are playing in that space said it's a bloke's view of love it's a man's view of love um and i wouldn't have thought of it that way as i wrote it but they're so unused to reading love stories with a male protagonist that that was a way that a way they framed it um, look, I think it's I think it's about the tension between romantic love and companionate love. Yeah. Um, so why would I tell people to read Adam Sharp? Look, I just think it's challenging. It's a little bit challenging about um, how we feel about love. Um, I think people, some people find it quite disturbing because it's that picture. Of, hey, you know, are you saying you know, if my husband got a phone call or you know, an email from someone from his past that he might leave me like this guy does? What a rat! Mm-hmm. And, and yet you would, I would turn to them and say, stop thinking about your husbands. Think about yourself. Yeah. Say, if you heard from the great love of your life, would you be tempted to have lunch with them? And, you know, could that go somewhere? Where are you at? And it's just interesting. You know, I think forces a little examination. Yeah. No, I think everyone should read the book. Um, <laughs> well, that would be fabulous. <laughs> yes. Five, seven billion copies. That's yes. <laughs> I was just thinking, sorry, this is off topic, but Elise, maybe we should read this for our book club, actually. Um, sure. Yeah, so Graham, Elise and I and our friends are in a book club called Danger Book Club, where we yeah. recommend books that are out of our comfort zones. And there are a few men in the club, so I think this might be an oh, interesting Oh, it's going to be interesting. Book clubs are so – I almost never hear of a book club that is um, more than one gender. They tend to be all women or all, very occasionally all, all men. Um, that's fantastic. You've got to, got to mix. I think, I think Adam Sharp would be a really interesting book to read in a mixed book club. And I know that men, there's a couple of men's book clubs I know who've read Adam Sharp and found it an interesting conversation. And look, you know, I, it's one of those things that – when book clubs do the Rosie Project, they often get in touch with me and say, yeah, this was the highest rated book we've ever you know, had. Yeah. I don't expect that with Adam Sharp. I would like to say this is the most divisive book. <laughs> it would prompt some great discussion, I'm sure, because we, uh, we pick a lot of divisive books and you know, it kind of tears down some people when their favourite book gets torn apart <laughs> by the club. But it also means that we end up reading books that are outside of our comfort zone and we wouldn't normally pick up. Um, but you will note, you'll be pleased to know for a book club, especially if it's one of those book clubs where you drink wine, that um, all of my books are, are soaked in, in food and wine. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
feels appropriate considering the um, love of cocktails that we get through in the Rosie project as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, I think this is our final question for the night, but um, on this vein, do you have any uh, author or book recommendations that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, that, that is that is such a tough one. Um, mm. You'd be surprised how little I read at the moment. <laughs> um, so, what have I read recently that I that I liked? Um, Jacqueline Bublitz um, wrote a book called "Before You Knew Me," which I think is quite compelling. Um, it, it's sort of it's I wouldn't call it a thriller, more of a mystery in, in many ways, but yeah. Um, told from the point of view, you know, it's a, told from the point of view of a woman who's been raped and murdered. So it's not, you know, not happy territory, but it, it's a, a finely written and quite original sort of book. And she's a Melbourne slash Auckland person, so it's nice to read read local books. Um, I mean, people, people in the psych space should give um, at least one of my wife Anne Buist's books, solo books, a read because she writes air books are pretty much exclusively. Um, with psychiatrists or psychologists as uh, as the uh, protagonists, and um, yeah, I think um, mm-hmm. interesting reads. Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to think of something utterly brilliant, and it'll be just after we we, we finish this. But um, <laughs> I'm afraid, afraid it's just one of those questions I'm not brilliant at because I'm just not picking up enough books at the moment. Look, the one thing that fascinates me is um, is some some writers clearly get human relationships and interaction and do, do smart things with them. Um, and, and, you know, some clearly don't and they've just got, you know, people, evil guys who twirl their moustache before they go off. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sally Hepworth, who writes what I think most people would call women's fiction, to my mind has a very sharp eye, not only for the superficialities of human interactions, which you know, screenwriters are fabulous at, but, um, but for the deeper... Um, the deeper things between between people, as, as does um, uh, he's a good observer. I mean, just think of people around Melbourne who may not be so so widely read. Kylie Ladd is um, a fine observer of relationships, and you know, writes occasionally in the Adam Adam Sharp space um, of uh, illicit relationships and so forth. And she's a psychologist. Well, I mean, that sounds like it's very much up our alley. Yeah, I'll be looking up all of these books. <laughs> That's all of our questions. Okay, look, well, thanks, guys. It's been a delight to meet you both and to talk to you. All right, so that wraps up our interview with Graham. On our website, in our show notes, some of the resources we'll link to include some resources and links that we've previously included in blog posts around autism. We'll include Graham's website and his Twitter account, and we'll include some information and links to the books and authors that Graham recommends. Please remember to subscribe and follow us to keep up to date with us and to know when our new episodes are posted. Website is novelfeelings.com. And if you like us, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also ask us a question on via our website and check out our other blog posts and reviews there. To keep up to date with us, remember to follow us on social media. At the moment, we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Goodreads, though we are most active on Instagram. Find us through at novel underscore feelings. You can also find me on Bookstagram, which at the time of recording has scheduled posts, so I am active there at the moment. (laughs) You can find that at paved with books with an extra s thank you so much for listening and thank you once again to graham for joining us for this wonderful interview thanks everybody bye Bye.